This is the Cyber Union Talk Show for Monday, May 7th, 2012. Gimme Net Freedoms! Hello and welcome to Cyber Unions. I'm Walton in Glasgow, Scotland. And with me is Stephen. Yes, yes, me. And you've gotten me up so early in the morning, Walton. Uh, nobody gets me up this early unless they make me breakfast. Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> I want my breakfast. <laughs> How are you doing um, in midday Scotland? Yeah, it's after midday. It's uh, it's after 2 o'clock recording. So um, a little bit of sunshine, which is welcome. And uh, for listeners, it's Bank Holiday Monday. So I hope that if you're in the UK, you're enjoying a well-deserved day of rest and you're still in bed and not working. <laughs> that, that's a hopeful sign. Um, I don't think the same <laughs> holiday exists here because that was last Monday, the actual May 1st, which is when you're supposed mm-hmm. to take the day off. Um, mm-hmm. Though this is my first time of ever being in a country where the day is an actual holiday. <laughs> so um, it's actually interesting, I have to say, because the, the May 1st marches here were huge. Uh, and I got mm-hmm. one hell of a tan. Um, oh, well done. Yeah, but like the police were escorting every single march. There must have been about 10 or 15 different marches all going to the Sokolo, which is like the center of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was actually really cool to see, honestly. Uh, granted that most of the unions here are pretty damn corrupt, and they put corruption on a whole new scale where you kind of want the mafia to be involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, but other than that, like in the States, I was reading that there was a lot of uh, Occupy, the a lot of the radical groups and the immigration organ- groups uh, did a really good show of, uh, mm-hmm. of support and solidarity out there. Um, Chicago uh, seemed to have had a good article written on it, which we'll put a link in the show notes that was coming from, I think it's Itstrich. It's, it's, it's Stritz. I can't pronounce the IRC name, <laughs> but Matt Johnson and uh, and our IRC had sent a link uh, about an article covering May Day in Chicago and the differences this year in comparison to last year. Of course, last year was also when Osama bin Laden was killed, um, which really kind of killed the May first feel. <laughs> but um, mm. no pun intended on that one. Um, but. <laughs> um, uh, it was it was uh, really good. It was really cool to see uh, an article being written about it. But I think, uh, as Matt had su- suggested in the IRC, they give a little bit more credence to our ability to understand socialism <laughs> and the actual <laughs> consciousness within the labor movement. But um, it was it was a good article. So we'll put a link in the show notes for it. Uh, how how are how are things in in the uh, the UK? Uh, things are I guess things are interesting across Europe. Uh, May Day wasn't huge here the way. Um, sounds like it was in, in Mexico. Um, but uh, yeah, there's certainly some consciousness about it. I guess the big news here is that we had local government elections, so for, for local authorities, local councils mm. um, across uh, England, Wales, and, and Scotland. And um, mostly the news is, is fairly good. Uh, the Conservative Party, the Tories' uh, vote was decimated. They did really badly. The Liberal Democrats, who are the party that went into coalition with the Tories and essentially sold out, uh, did even worse. Um, Labour did pretty well. The Greens did a lot better than usual. Um, the Scottish National Party did pretty well. Um, and the fascists were completely wiped out. Oh. So well, that's generally, a, yeah, generally a, um, a big shift to the, to the left. Um, the one disappointment is that the um, blonde buffoon uh, Boris Johnson remains mayor of London mm. um, with a, a reduced lead, but... Uh, 
Uh, unfortunately, people chose to vote for vacuous celebrity nonsense over any kind of substance, which is disappointing, but generally um, an interesting result and an interesting election period in Europe generally because there's the election in France, which might see the return of Ola, which would be, I guess, a re- shift to the left in France as well. And also next week, I think, significant elections in Greece. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being seeing that Europe is the last holdout of any remnant of the social democratic post-war settlement mm-hmm. and that Greece is the the, the domino in the the, the the final neoliberal assault on on, um, on social democracy. What happens in Greece is is, is crucial because if uh, you know Greece falls, then the next domino is, is Spain and uh, Portugal and Italy, and uh, then you know the the last kind of last holdout of social democracy is destroyed, and we're all in the same neoliberal wonderland that uh, you've enjoyed for most of your life. Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great, it's a great experience. I must say, um, that sucks. <laughs> and let's hope it doesn't come to that. But let's also hope that uh, there's a big revolution at some point soon. <laughs> Please, <laughs> we need it desperately. <laughs> and not, you know, anyhow. But um, that's that sounds good. And in, in fact, I think the elections is something that we'll we'll have to cover next week um, and just try to give a recap because I know France is having elections this weekend that that is going to be. It seems like that the Socialist Party is likely to take out Sarkozy, which is anything mm-hmm. better. Than, anything is better than Sarkozy. Um, so it'll be uh, interesting to see where that where that goes um, as well. And I mean, elections are here in Mexico coming up in July, and it's kind of ridiculous. But we we should definitely talk about that next week. Okay. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry, I'm stretching. It's still morning. <laughs> um, I just wanted to share one other thing, just on a little brief little tech thing before we get into our interview, which is a really, it's a really extensive mm-hmm. interview that, that I think is really good. Um, just this morning, I was reading a, an article about um, uh, OpenStreetMaps, which uh, apparently Apple, uh, which if nobody really knows, I think we may have said this number of times, but uh, Steve Jobs and Apple were the first uh, violators of the GPL, the free software license. Um they uh, had been using and switched from Google Maps to OpenStreetMaps. Uh, but OpenStreetMaps has a very strict thing of if you use it, which you're free to do, please give credit. And uh, initially, Apple didn't give credit. But um, through this article, we'll put a link in the show notes for. Uh, surprisingly, an, an Apple iOS developer uh, may be the, the reason that Apple actually ended up giving credit for the OpenStreetMaps. Mm-hmm. So now on, on their on the application, I think it's on their iPhone or iPad. I can't remember which one it is specifically. I don't have either, so it is irrelevant to me. But um, it is cool to see that Apple is giving credit to OpenStreetMaps, which in turn gives OpenStreetMaps credibility, which is actually a very good tool to use instead of Google Maps if you don't want to be tracked. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I also found out in, in addition to that that in DuckDuckGo, Mm-hmm. If you do the bang OSM as in OpenStreetMaps, it'll do a search on OpenStreetMaps. Um, that was bothering me because if you just did bang maps, it would go to Google Maps. And I wanted to use OpenStreetMaps and just guessed, mm. and it worked. So bang OSM uh, does OpenStreetMaps on DuckDuckGo. I'm, I'm really liking um, DuckDuckGo a lot more the more I use it. Uh, yeah. I think it's great. It's a phenomenal searchability. It, it just it seems so much more intuitive in a lot of ways too. Um, even though there's some things you have to learn about it, it just after a while you're like, wait, I don't have to deal with all this Google ad crap. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, so it, it is a good thing. 
Um, with, without further ado, Walton, I think we should actually jump into this interview. It is quite extensive. so um... Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited about it because um, Smarty McCarthy is really, really interesting. I've heard a lot about him, read a lot of his, about his stuff, read, heard a lot about the about INI, the Icelandic Modern Media Institute, and now the International Modern Media Institute. And uh, it's a worthwhile and fascinating project, and I think it's going to be fantastic. So here we go. Enjoy. So joining us today on Cyber Unions is Smarty McCarthy from the IMMI, which uh, thank you for joining us, Smarty. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Um, now, what does the IMMI stand for? Well, it used to stand for Icelandic Modern Media Initiative uh, when we started the project, but uh, now we've founded a, a, an institute around it uh, to kind of uh, uh, keep the original ME project, as we call it, and, and a few other projects under one hat. So that's called the International Modern Media Institute. Um, we thought we were being very clever when we came up with that, but really it's just confusing. ME <laughs> is how I pronounce yep, it. So. Yep. <laughs> um, so, uh, Smori, can you tell me, uh, tell us a bit about what, what ME does? What, uh, what, what is the project about? What are you trying to do? Um, what was... Why did you start it? Well, we started it as a kind of um, uh, idea of taking the best laws from around the world and packaging them up into this kind of uh, uh, shield or, or safe haven thing um, mm -hmm. with the idea of, of making Iceland into the best um, uh, country in the world to host information. Now, okay. really, we don't really want to stop at that. Um, using Iceland as a kind of test bed is quite good because it's a small country with a very uh, strong democracy and, and uh, kind of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's nimble, it's quick, it can, it can take uh, sensible decisions very quickly. But ultimately what we want to do is just raise the bar on um, free speech and privacy rights and, and access to information and communications uh, Mm -hmm. Just raise the bar high enough that we pull it up globally and, and kind of be able to lobby different countries to adopt similar laws. So it's a, so it's a best practice standard that you're trying to develop and set and, and hoping that activists in other countries will uh, use that example to push for uh, similar laws in their own countries. Yes, exactly. We, we want to... Um, uh, kind of break the mold that uh, you know. Uh, since since I got involved with internet activism or information activism uh, about a, you know almost ten years ago, um, we, we've always been on the defensive, and you know the internet has always been taking hits. But uh, mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, we're trying to do with this is kind of reverse that trend a little bit and, and start being proactive and saying, okay, this is the, the kind of legislation that the Internet wants to, to protect itself against people who want to, to damage the Internet and damage human rights and, and free speech. And once you kind of put that kind of value statement forward, and it's very mm -hmm. easy to tie it up with uh, commercial interests and, and human rights arguments and... Uh, and actually, just any uh, any argument is easily won with this kind of rhetoric. So, um, so that's basically the idea. Um, start the start entering the conversation as a as an attack vector, as a, opposed to a, a defensive strategy. Hmm. 
That's very interesting. Now, now exactly, I guess, uh, I, I, being from the U.S., we supposedly have great free speech laws, which is a whole other thing when it comes to practice. Um, I, but actually, how, how actually, that's well, not really, like, uh, the United States Constitution says that uh, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, etc. But that doesn't really stop, uh, you know, city councils, for instance. Uh, so one of the things we, we've been seeing quite a lot in, in relation to the Occupy movement is uh, that free speech rights are quite easily trodden down when when it's um, municipal authorities um, working together. Yeah, that's and that's clearly clearly happening. Definitely, um, as I was just reading a case that the, the couple of legislators and, and uh, journalists in the in the city of New York are actually suing the police department for uh, violating First Amendment laws. But the, clearly, there there are ways that the cities are able to get around it um, and put regulations and violations and different things. It's quite disturbing in a lot of ways. But how does how does the IMI, IMMI um, what how does it go further in in, in this process? Well, so the first thing to understand is that uh, all of the free speech protections that are ingrained in constitutions worldwide uh, more or less just came out of the kind of philosophical movement at the uh, end of the uh, 17th century. Um, and the idea there was uh, was always just, uh, you know, let's just allow free speech. It was very simple. Uh, mm -hmm. And protect it. But there wasn't any nuance to that, and and you know we're we're 200 years online, and you know uh, two world wars, an industrial revolution, and, and an information revolution later, and the complexity of of human civilizations has just increased so amazingly that that it's uh, the types of free speech protections that that people dreamt up 300 years ago or 200 years ago just don't really manage to cover it anymore, so. One of the ways we're trying to do this is just by adding a bit of nuance. Uh, we're we're looking mm -hmm. looking around at the different types of situations that that come up, and um, just uh, you know once we've identified a, an actual problem, then we try to abstract it a bit and and see if if the problem has any other kind of angles to it. And once we figure that mm -hmm. out, then we can start saying, okay, this is a law that we need to to build. So. Um, one aspect of that is, uh, for instance, libel tourism. Libel tourism is this kind of weird situation where um, in most countries, when you sue somebody for libel, you need to prove that they were libeling you. And and, and in uh, sensible countries, uh, them having told the truth is, um, is actually a valid defense. But uh, in the UK, uh, the truth is not necessarily a defense. And what's more, the the person who is accused of libel has the burden of proof, uh, so so suddenly um, instead of uh, the accuser having to to shoulder that burden, the um, the accused has to do it, and that really makes things a lot more complicated. Uh, it means that uh, accu accusers can tie people up in court for you know virtually indefinitely. It's uh, it becomes just a question of how much money each party is willing to throw at the problem, and. Uh, this is really bad. So libel tourism is this kind of weird situation that lots of people uh, take um, take their libel cases to to England rather than dealing with them in whichever country would be most appropriate. And finding ways of stopping that is is very important. Um, New York actually came up with a way of doing that a couple of years ago, uh, which is basically to say um, we're not going to 
um, respect any any court verdict which comes from a country that doesn't have uh, First Amendment style protections for for free speech. And with the way we are going to try and do it here, and actually this is kind of one of the things that that can be you know ticked off our list, is um, Iceland's party to something called the Lugano Treaty. And Article 34 of the Lugano Treaty more or less says that um, that a court in one country, uh, one member or signatory state of this treaty, can refuse to honour a court verdict from another state if it violates the general rule of law. So you know, it's kind of a, a, a neat little kind of lawyerish hack that that allows us to just say, you know, if a court verdict comes from England, and well, then we won't necessarily accept uh, that court verdict here, uh, and you'd have to retry the case in order to have it enforced, which is exactly what mm-hmm. we need. So I, I guess the the IMMI passed in Iceland recently, right? Um, not exactly. So what happened was um, back in 2010, uh, we we wrote a parliamentary resolution proposal, uh, and that that basically means it's a uh, uh, it, it turned out to be a parliamentary resolution. So it was accepted unanimously um, in June of that year, uh, and what a resolution is, it's just kind of. Parliament, the, the Legislative Assembly, saying to the Executive, we want you to do this. And the Executive now has to go and, and work through and figure out all these different laws. And there's about 14 different laws that need to be changed. So this is kind of, you know, that was the start of what's going to be a long process. It's going to take two or three years uh, more. And, uh, you know, it's it starts off really, really slowly. So for the first two years, we didn't really have anything to say except, you know, we're working on it. Now, recently, uh, we put out kind of our first status report, which kind of goes through, you know, okay, we've we've gotten source protection through, we've uh, we've gotten this libel tourism thing more or less uh, put a lid on it. Um, we've got um, computer emergency response team in the works. We've got um, certain changes to um, information rights, uh, almost out of the parliament. Um, you know, there's various things, but but it's kind of just it's taking a long time. We haven't even started touching on the issue of whistleblower protection because it's just a really big thing. Um, uh, Smurdy, just as an, an aside, one of the things that occurs to me is that all of this has only become possible due to crisis. Um, the you know the, the the global financial crisis, as we know, had. Um, a devastating effect on Iceland, which also led to a political crisis. And if I remember correctly, there was a um, a, a massive change uh, politically, where some of the the smaller parties became more more prominent. And I think it's a Birgitta Jonsdotter. Is that is that correct? Who was a um, a member of your parliament who was able to to put a lot of this 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 through. And that is that's personally interesting to me because one of the things we talk about on the show at the moment is. The, the role of crisis in facilitating change and how um, trade unionists and other activists can use um, the, the crises that we face around the world um, to, to leverage situations which would have seemed uh, intractable um, during the economic boom a few years ago. Um, so would you say that, that it's correct? It's only, it's only due to a, a breakdown of um, some of the old certainties that you've been able to, to bring this initiative forward. 
Yeah, well, certainly Iceland went through uh, a kind of rough patch of economic woes starting in, in 2008, and that kind of uh, opened up a lot of opportunities. You know, somebody said you shouldn't waste a, a, a crisis. Good, yeah. um, but um, I'm not sure it's only possible because of that. You know, th this mm -hmm. kind of thing, um, you know, the crisis definitely led to a kind of line of thought which allowed us to... Um, uh, to start thinking about these kind of things, but uh, but I'm not sure that um, that in a kind of non-crisis situation it would have been entirely impossible to to do it. But mm -hmm. the crisis certainly helped, and in part because it got uh, kind of uh, these um, uh, well uh, self-described radicals into the parliament. You know, people like Birgitta, who uh, who you know want to push for systemic change and want to um, you know alter the the way politics is done so uh, you know having her there abs absolutely changed you know it, it that probably made it possible more than than a lot of other things because uh, she kind of jumped onto this idea very early on when we were talking about it and kind of carried it through and did all of the negotiations within the parliament that mm -hmm. that made it uh, uh, the proposal go through but um, the other thing is, you know, wh when you have a country that's gone through a crisis, uh, people start to be a bit more open to uh, mm -hmm. weirder alternatives. Um, we had been kind of, uh, uh, you know, a banking super state on a micro nation scale um, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. several years up until up until two thousand eight, and and you know when the banking sector disappeared suddenly. Uh, what we had lef left was fish and aluminum, and <laughs> people, you know, and, uh, and and cheap energy, yeah, cheap green energy, cheap energy, sure. But uh, we can't really export that, and uh, you know, it's not really mm. uh, the only way we can export it today is is through uh, importing bauxite and exporting aluminum. Um, you mm. know, th that's a really energy intensive process, but it's a really dirty process mm -hmm. that a lot of the people in Iceland just don't really want. So, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, we have a massively educated population um, that's used to very, very low unemployment levels and, and you know, uh, people who really genuinely want to be hardworking. And the, the crisis moved the unemployment level from 1% up to 9% and uh, just didn't really, you know, uh, people were left kind of wanting to, to see something else come in. Now, mm -hmm. what, we, what we're proposing you know, frankly, you know, with uh, data centers and so on, uh, data centers really don't hire that many people. You know, the, that, mm. that's not really their value. But um, having data centers in good environments with cheap energy and, and good legal protections and, and good connectivity th to the outside world uh, is kind of a prerequisite if you're going to start doing a um, a heavily... Uh, ICT-based or, or you know, communications or information technology-based um, uh, economy, and mm -hmm. today, you know, there there are some very big information technology companies here, like CCP, for instance, which is you know a very large computer game company, but they have to run all of their servers from London because the the mm -hmm. um, the latency is just too high. And mm -hmm. then there's companies like Opera that uh, that run their um, their download system from here because they don't really care about latency. So you know, within the, all this kind of 
realm of uh, of services that you can can provide online, you know, uh, building the infrastructure and, and making making that available will actually help for about two thirds of all of the different uh, scenarios that can come up, and then you just need well-educated okay. people to to jump in and, and make, mm-hmm. you know. So- so, so it's also an opportunity for Iceland to develop a new sector to replace the hole left by the collapse of finance. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully a, a more diversified, you know, I mean, putting all your mm-hmm. eggs in one basket is, a, a, you know, not very clever. And hopefully people here have learned that lesson. <laughs> so it seems that the, the political dynamic in, in Iceland is much uh, healthier in a lot of ways than uh, other countries. Um, and... I guess one of the things that I'm wondering, because I imagine it has come up in discussion, is the the ACTA and CISPA, which is currently going through Congress in the U.S. right now. Um, mm-hmm. What what the IMI, IMMI is, is thoughts on it and um, how to work? I guess I guess it would be against, but that's my assumption. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if we start with ACTA, um, uh, ACTA has already been ratified, or it's already been signed by the United States. It hasn't been ratified there. Um, and it's a multinational trade agreement, and currently the only thing standing between um, uh, you know uh, us and, and total doom is um, is the European <laughs> Parliament, uh, and they ha- they have uh, an election on it there um, in June. So what total doom means in this case is um, uh, an absolute breakdown of intermediate liability limitations. Uh, a, a criminalization of copyright violations which kind of opens up the door for all sorts of uh, gross violations of free speech uh, by simply just enabling a kind of chilling effect. Um, the chilling effect coming from these uh, companies which uh, are using their intellectual monopoly rights to, uh, to stifle the propagation of information through the world. And uh, it, it also has some kind of weird other consequences, like uh, for generic drugs and, and seeds. Um, you know, the ACTA isn't really just a threat to the Internet. It's a threat to a kind of very large portion of, of human endeavors, uh, you know, right down to agriculture. And the agriculture argument is one that you hardly ever hear anybody talk about because the farmers just think it's uh, a, a, an Internet thing. And the uh, internet people don't really understand farming, so you know uh, I would love to see you know, hackers going side by side with farmers and you know everybody with pitchforks, but I just don't see it happening. <laughs> um, but either way, you know, hopefully ACTA will be stopped, and and you know, realistically, even if it gets stopped in Europe, then there's already lots of signatories: uh, Mexico, United States, Canada. Um, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, etc. Morocco is even a member of it for reasons that are entirely beyond my own, uh, comprehension. But um, so, but the question is, you know, what becomes of it if if Europe doesn't join? Um, probably, what will happen is that its teeth will be drawn out to su- uh, a sufficient extent that the rest of the countries never actually ratify it. But hopefully, uh, hopefully that will happen. Um, but possibly the United States, will, uh, who are the instigators of ACTA, will just say, okay, let's, uh, let's just carry on with it anyway. I mean, at least we have uh, copyright violations in, in Mexico. You know, 
taken care of for the next uh, unforeseeable future. And that would be a, a real tragedy. Um, one of the things we've seen a lot uh, in recent years, uh, for instance, in the new Kenyan constitution. So, so Kenya did a constitutional reform a couple of years ago. And uh, it has three different articles providing for I intellectual monopolies. Um, so when I say intellectual monopoly, I'm saying, uh, I mean what other people call an intellectual property. Um, but uh, it's very strange for a country to have three different articles on intellectual monopoly rights. And, and this is kind of a global trend that's happening where you know, um, it, it appears that there was some lobbyism from some angle uh, that's managed to get into the Kenyan process. And that's kind of a, an entry point of kind of wedging their way into uh, you know, e East Africa as a, as a whole. Mm -hmm. you know, all these emerging markets uh, are you know, just waiting to be uh, tapped and or controlled by, by uh, entrenched interests. So, um, Smorty, this is uh, it's 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 really really fascinating yeah. stuff, and I was quite taken with the way you described the split between the farmers and the internet activists, and um, you know I'm, I'm wondering what kind of role the labour movement um, could could play in this. We had a discussion before we we started recording where you you spoke about uh, um, the industrialization of the internet and and where is the digital labor movement? Why are unions not organizing people online? And um, I'm wondering if there's a way that unions can understand the importance uh, and the implications of, of these things and, and maybe help to bridge some of that, that gap. Do you have any thoughts on the labor movement? Well, yeah. Um, the problem that labor movements kind of been caught up in in the last 100 years is that um, after the eight-hour work week was established and, and uh, uh, universal suffrage, those were the two big wins, and since then, not really mm -hmm. much has happened. It, it's kind of gone the same path as a lot of other kind of pol political ideologies or, uh, or you know, uh, goal-oriented movements, in the sense that once mm -hmm. the goal was reached, then nobody knew what to do anymore. And since then, you mm -hmm. know, everybody's just been haggling over over the little stuff, the the details. Um, one of mm -hmm. the reasons I think that's happened is because of a massive uh, centralization of authority within the labor movement, uh, mm. uh, kind of the creation of uh, hierarchies and, um, uh, and power structures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we agree completely Certainly. with that. <laughs> yeah. so, so one of the things that, uh, that you know, we're looking at the internet, and this is kind of you know where all my analysis comes from. Is always looking at the internet, and actually looking at the industrial revolution because uh, I, I think it's a fascinating mistake in human history. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the, the industrial revolution kind of promised everybody you know um, less work, uh, more uh, quality of life, uh, you know, uh, better equality, etc. But then it just didn't happen, and it didn't happen because um, there was uh, this ownership element, this this kind of uh, control structure that came from the fact that the machines were really difficult to build, they were expensive to build, and not many people could actually do that. Um, so you have things like uh, in England during the uh, uh, 1811 to 1815, the uh, the Luddite movement, which you know they're mm -hmm. always put forward as kind of this anti-technology, anti-anti-progress uh, kind of uh, group of, of uh, terrorists. 
but if you actually read through their writings, you find out that they were not really against the technology as such, they were against the centralization of the control of technology. Although, mm. although to be fair, uh, the way they, um, they put it forward at the time wasn't really all that nuanced. They, they were kind of a couple of decades too early to, to get kind of uh, Kropotkinite or, or Marxist analysis. But, you know, mm. uh, that would have been uh, really helpful. <laughs> but, um, you know, looking at the Internet today, you, get, uh, you see exactly the same thing. You see this kind of uh, trend towards greater centralization where... You know, uh, two decades ago, everybody ran their own email server. They they communicated um, uh, over Usenet news groups. They um, had PBSs. You know, these kind of really decentralized and localized services that uh, were very democratically operated. And now we have Facebook and Twitter and Google. And, you know, mm -hmm. e each of these is quite nice in its own right. They, they have, you know, they, they've managed to do some really amazing things. But because they're centralized services, instead of being uh, protocols that allow everybody to communicate on the same power level, um, we, we have this kind of centralization tendency. And one of the things we can do is just kind of take a step back and move towards this kind of traditionalist approach to the Internet and say wait, let's stop this institutionalization of communications and start building um, these uh, d dispersed uh, mesh networks of, of anybody who wants to participate. And let's do it by uh, exchanging the institution itself for a language by which we can communicate with each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so taking us back to the labor movement, well, what's happened there? We've, we've seen a, a super uh, institutionalization, which has led to uh, very few people having uh, lots of control over the way we do things. And mm -hmm. um, there's practically nothing that happened because, because uh, the, the entrenched powers in the labor movement just uh, don't have the, uh, uh, any incentive to change the status quo. So, or in size, I think. You know, yeah, or, or that. So, okay, let's replace the institutions that are labor movement, uh, labor unions, uh, with a language. You know, let's figure out a way to allow everybody uh, who who could be or should be engaged in labor struggle to communicate with each other on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Once we do that, then we can start talking about you know real change of of. Um, the proportions that we were looking at, you know, uh, around May 1st, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, well, actually 130-ish years ago, but <laughs> you get my yes. mind, right? <laughs> in, our, in our last podcast, we, we actually discussed the history of May 1st and starting in Chicago in 1886, so yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. Hey, Mark. There we go. <laughs> Very good. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, All right. yeah, I... I that, yeah, that, that, by the way, was absolutely crucial stuff because that is the project that we're trying to, to engage with is, is what you've articulated there. So uh, it's very good to, to hear it all from mm -hmm. you. Um, I, I work for a trade union, so I know um, all the structural problems with, with the organization and how there, there's, there's a lack of insight and understanding of how um, production has shifted 
shifted you know there's um it's we're no longer in a Fordist manufacturing environment we are in a totally different world the principles are the same people are still working we need to organize them but we have moved into a different space and we need to approach that space differently so um, uh, absolutely uh, yeah it's good to hear all of well, that well uh, actually i have um i have some writings on the subject that could be um uh, could be useful to you, but let's let's talk about that. Another time. Well. Yes, <laughs> certainly. And my my experience has been working with the labor with the labor unions in the states and seeing the hierarchical structures of it, it is just mind blowing and, and disturbing in so many different ways. Um, but yeah. I, I was curious, kind of going a little bit back to the IMMI, because I, when I was looking through some of the information online, it had specifically mentioned stuff uh, or goals of trying to protect whistleblowers and trying to figure what, yes. what the idea is behind that and, and how um, and then what mechanisms would be in place to, to protect them in that situation. Okay, well, so protecting whistleblowers is probably one of the most complicated things I've ever tried to wrap my head around. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's not difficult to understand. It's difficult to plug all the holes. Um, you see, you have different types of whistleblowers. Uh, so commercial whistleblowers, uh, political um, uh, people from inside uh, state bureaucracies. Uh, you have uh, people from civil society. You have uh, individuals who are not really connected in in any way to any of that, uh, in so far as they're whistleblowing. And then you have uh, the different problems that they can be facing. So this could range from uh, losing their jobs, so having financial troubles, to uh, violating um, state secrecy laws or, or uh, laws which are considered to be um, uh, anything from national security interests to privacy rights, um, and then issues uh, regarding um, uh, psychological health. You know, basically whether uh, people go into PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, after after having blown a whistle uh, or something. Um, and you, and then of course physical threats. So so um, needing uh, kind of similar things to witness protection programs or so on. And you know that's without even getting into all of the the complexities that come from uh, the different types of agencies, the different types of uh, of exposure, and the different uh, people who are pissed off at the fact that they just had the whistle blown on them. Um, so so you know it's a very wide spectrum of of problems that need to be dealt with and. Uh, in going into this, we, we you know, we we've been uh, moving towards this by, you know, just uh, we we got the source protection through first. We we thought that that was an easier thing to achieve, um, and source protection is is basically allowing journalists to have legal protection that uh, prevents them from being coerced and actually, in fact, punishes them if they do expose their sources. Um, so that's a very kind of you know good good start um then you know we're we're going to be moving towards that for a long time but uh, effectively you know once we have enough pieces in place we're hoping that the complexity of whistleblower protection will kind of dissolve into into nothingness and we'll we'll have the perfect mm -hmm. bill nice so we we, ha we have a few drafts that we've been throwing around but you know it's really uh, it's brutal stuff yeah no i can imagine and um I'm thinking in the lines that you were talking earlier about um, Iceland has become kind of a hotbed for a lot of hosting for a lot of different organizations and things like that. And recently we had come by the news of, of a server being taken down in New York. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, and it, it, this is a little bit out there, but if a server, if the server was, say, in Iceland um, with uh, hypothetically an IMMI fully supported thing in place, um, 
what mm-hmm. I mean, what what mechanisms would be there to to prevent the FBI or or foreign governments from from forcing or demanding the hand of Iceland to to hand information over? Well, so uh, FBI has no jurisdiction in Iceland. If they were to find something objectionable in Iceland, uh, they could. Uh, basically go through the same procedure as the Icelandic police or any other uh, entity in uh, taking the issue to court and requesting an injunction. Now, um, so the, there's an understanding that, uh, you know, under, under our constitution that uh, there shall be no prior restraint, meaning that, you know, you cannot be punished for, for publishing something until you've actually published it. That, that's kind of the first thing. Um, then... Uh, in order to get an injunction, you need to uh, fulfill certain very strict criteria, which um, you know are there for a very good reason. Uh, so, for instance, if the issue is that there's a, a server hosting child pornography, then you know it'll be easy to get an injunction, and that'll be taken down. Um, the second is is a kind of more contentious one is um, a copyright violation, so violation of intellectual monopoly rights. Um, in which case the court will grant an injunction and it will be taken down. And the third is one which we are slightly worried about, which is a general injunction, um, a general court order which uh, isn't really clarified in law. And that's actually one of our projects this summer is trying to figure out exactly what that, um, w- what that statement should be replaced by. So... Uh, so there's a question of should libelous comments be taken down? Well, we think not. We're, if something is uh, tagged as being libelous, and maybe it w- uh, you know, uh, or rather, if there's a a um, court ruling which says that a statement is libelous, then it might be okay to uh, to tag it somehow, to uh, you know, put a notice on the web page or whatever saying this is libelous content or this content was um, you know found to be libelous under this here court case, but. Generally speaking, um, we don't want things to be taken down because of, of court orders, um, except in these very narrow cases. So, um, you know, protection of, of uh, bodily integrity, protection of uh, minors, uh, that kind of thing uh, is good, but uh, by and large, there shouldn't be any takedown orders. Uh, Smolly, one of the projects that we speak about quite a lot on the show and which we promote to people is, is Tor. We think it's it's a useful tool for activists, particularly in countries where there is um, a lot of state control of the internet. Do you have any, any links or any relationship with that uh, project? Um, not as such. I, I know most of the people who work for the project. Uh, they're really amazingly cool people. Um, and I fully support the project. Uh, you know, I, I use it myself quite a bit. Um, and and it kind of you know comes into the other aspect of all of this that you know even though the project I'm working on is very tightly uh, bound into trying to fix the laws, uh, law is just policy at the end of the day, you know, and that's not uh, policy can be broken. Anybody can just decide that mm-hmm. policy isn't policy anymore, and, and uh, that's not good enough. So, you know, uh, without being too much of a technological determinist, I, I would say, you know, try to get good laws, try to hold good democracy, but at the end of the day, always have, have your backup plan, and that should be um, mathematically provable technological methods, such as Tor. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
that's yeah. that, that that's absolutely fantastic. Um, Smory, this has been really fantastic. We've got listeners. Uh, some of them work in in software and IT, and others are are ordinary trade unionists. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of practical application can can you suggest? How how what is the best way that they can engage with with your project and with what you're trying to do? Okay, that's a difficult <laughs> one. Um, <laughs> so, in part, uh, you know, this kind of comes down to just understanding what your threat model is. Um, if you are mm-hmm. hosting a dissident website that's uh, likely to be taken down, and you might want to consider moving it to a country with a good jurisdiction, uh, in, you know, good protections for for free speech, uh, like Iceland. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, regardless of what your model is. Um, there's always the the situation that uh, there's a massive erosion of civil liberties going on worldwide, uh, very much driven by the the copyright uh, holders and uh, and so on, uh, or at least that's what we're being led to think. Um, you know, uh, the the copyright lobby is big and strong, but realistically, uh, the the people who want to uh, get kind of uh, old big brother on, on us um, they really welcome this uh, it, it's kind of this uh, lineage where uh, a couple of I think it was last year or maybe the year before uh, some uh, representative of I think it was the international um, uh, phonogram industry uh, organization they said that during a meeting in Sweden that uh, they really love child pornography because uh, once uh, censorship has been uh, allowed for for child pornography, then they can start asking for the censorship to be expanded to cover copyright violation. And well, hey, once mm-hmm. you've gotten copyright violation dealt with, let's just expand it to cover political speech that that's uh, mm-hmm. inconvenient to the incumbents or or whatever. You know, you you start small and kind of uh, chip 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 away at, at our rights, and um, you know, regardless of whether you're a technologist or you know, uh, trade unionist or just a, a human living in a in a society, you know, mm-hmm. we need these mm-hmm. free speech rights. We need these uh, protections for for our right to communicate, and uh, protecting them in your home country, whichever country that is, is going to be very very important for the next couple of decades. That's great. Mm-hmm. Smarty, thank you very much for for your for coming onto the show. This was it's exceptionally informative, and I'm, I, I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Um, and we definitely, as things mm-hmm. progress with the with the IMMI in the future, um, we definitely would love to have you back on at some times. But thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been good. Thank you, Smarty. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, 
Today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.